0: turn our attention to the hearing of God's Word, and we're going to take up Jeremiah chapter 32. We looked at the first portion of that chapter last Sunday, and uh, I had intended, if you're looking at your worship folders, to to drift well into chapter 33 today, but that's just not going to happen. We're going to cover the remaining portion of Jeremiah chapter 32 And I pray that God will make this a a really particular blessing for us. I'm going to read out of Jeremiah 32. I'm going to read verses 26 to 40 and then pray. And we're going to consider God's word together this morning. So listen as I read God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger for the children of Israel. And the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the works of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day that it was built to this day. So that I will remove it from my sight because of all of the evil that the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings... And their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their backs to me, their backs and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened or received my instruction. They set up their abominations in their houses, in, my, in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom. To offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them. Nor did it enter into my heart. That they should do this abomination. And cause Judah to sin. Now therefore verse 36. Thus says the Lord the God of Israel. Concerning the city of which you say. It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon. By sword by famine and by pestilence. Behold I will gather them. From all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in, the land, in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord. Just as I have brought all this disaster upon the people. So I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. And deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of, of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do look to you, whenever we um, open up the scriptures, we find ourselves again in a place of particular need, because this is your holy word, and it is a living word. It is a powerful word, but it is a word that requires the spirit in order to understand what it says and what that means. So, Lord, we're asking again as we come together that you, by the powerful working of your spirit, would illumine our hearts and minds to give us understanding of who you are, of what you did in the past, of your promises and their pertinence even today in our lives. Lord, I pray that as I preach your word, that you would be pleased to help me to speak faithfully and clearly. And as it goes forward and it goes out, I pray that you will be pleased to help your people, those who you've brought here today. Whatever is going on, the circumstances of life, God, that you would give them a reprieve from that and be able to to sit undistracted and attend to your word and that your word would powerfully minister to their souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here again, we take up now the second part of Jeremiah. Chapter 32 now in the first part of Jeremiah chapter 32. We saw that strange thing where God had instructed Jeremiah to buy a plot of land Even though he was never going to live in that place He was never gonna get it the deed would be sealed and put away and it would be uh, Put into an earthenware vessel and it would be stored on the side and they would be in captivity for 70 years well beyond what was going to be Jeremiah's lifespan. And and the value to a large extent in that is to realize that God is powerfully at work. God is powerfully accomplishing his purposes, but it's important to note this. I am not the center of his purposes. He and his glory and his unfolding will is at the heart of his purposes. But we find today that there is a blessed reality that though I am not the center of his thoughts and purposes. His heart is set upon me. He does have glorious purpose for me. He does have very specific, good, divine intention, even towards me and even towards you. It's important for us to, to not somehow think that the universe and even the very God himself is at our beck and call to attend to our will. And he's all about our personal happiness. That's an error. But we must not fall to the other imbalance and say the great and glorious God is so occupied with Important things that I am unimportant to him The blessing and the reality that the scripture teaches is that yes, God is occupied with those things that we consider big and powerful which are actually very easy for him and he's also intentional and concerned With those who are his. I want to begin to take this up today. We're looking at it really. The idea of the power. The people and the promise. And we're going to see it unfold. And particularly as we get down to the promise. We're going to see that the promise that he gives. It has sort of a a historical temporal promise. That's going to be fulfilled after 70 years. When God restores the children of Israel to the land. But the language of that restoration. Is powerfully prophetic, okay? It points forward to those who will be the children of the promise, and it holds incredible parallels in how God exercises his power to bring about his people, okay? So we will just try to get that clear in our minds as we begin. The first thing that this passage begins to unfold for us today as we, as we start to look at it, is the fact that we see this the power of god the scriptures are replete with statements about god's power this one again begins with that simple notion of what i might call and and kind of building on what we were looking at earlier earlier this morning god's universal possession of everything one of the reasons why the scriptures often will call god he who made heaven and earth and all that is in it the hosts of heaven and all that we see and, and continues to state those things as it wants us to remember this he made it he owns it he, he doesn't technically have to purchase anything he's the absolute master by origination nothing exists that he did not bring into existence. Nothing would continue to exist if he did not sustain its existence. We're reminded towards the end of the book of Job that if God was to gather his breath to himself, all men would perish. Even as in the garden, we remember God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The scriptures assert God could, should he so desire, pull it back. We'd be drop and done. Everything. He absolutely owns and possesses everything. And that's declared here in the, under this simple notion that the, of this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 26, verse 27. <coughs> Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Again, it's it's a statement of his universal possession. Because it's important to note this. The, The mindset of the Jews, and it not unreasonably so, is he is our God. And we are his people. Because if you go to the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites, if you were to go among them, they had different temples. They had different idols. They had their different... Man-made, manufactured, false gods You could go from kingdom to kingdom in this era And none of the kingdoms were worshiping the true God The maker of heaven and earth The children of Israel were the only ones who were Supposed to be Worshipping the true God, but they had also turned aside from that and God states into this through Jeremiah this powerful statement I am the God of all flesh Now there is supposed to be a personal and particular way that he is the God Relationally with Israel But even though God in a relationship of the Old Covenant committed himself to that people in a special way of dealing with him That did not mean he lost power over the world It didn't mean that he no longer had absolute sovereign sway over all men Even though he was in a covenantal and relational way, the God of Israel, in reality, he alone is God, Lord and God over all. Even to the degree that it's going to manifest here, he is controlling the Chaldeans. He's controlling the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He's, so it's not just that he's in control of Israel, and it's not just that he's in control of the weather, but even those who don't know him, even those who don't acknowledge him, even those who are unaware of the truth of him, he is still their God, unknown to them, but he remains God, and he remains over them. Which is why also all men will someday stand before that God. As God the Son comes and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do so with the remarkable privilege of acceptance. Come inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Others will bend their knee acknowledging His sovereign rights of judgment. And judgment will be passed on them for every deed done in the body. But everyone will know beyond any doubt and any question. When He comes again, there is one God. He is God of all. All the other ideas, all of the other thoughts, all of the other issues are Imaginary. And so w- what we begin to see here is it goes on to say not only is it universal in possession, and we're going to see more of that in a moment, but he is unstoppable in power. We looked at that a little bit last week. Is anything too hard for me? And it, I showed you last week that that word there for hard is not just the ordinary word for hard or difficult. It's, it's the word Pele, which is the word for wondrous or astounding. Not only is it is nothing too hard for him, but there's nothing that's too amazing for him to accomplish. Well, could he do even that? Could he heal a person of even that? And we would see there would be a king who is going to certain death and God can say, know what, I'm going to give you 15 more years and pull that illness back and, and give him 15 more years. Why 15? Couldn't he have given him 10? Couldn't he have given him 50? Yes, but he gave him 15. He not only can do anything, he also gets to choose what he does. He, 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 not, uh, he not only has all divine rights to be a dictator. He has the right to dictate what he himself does. And this, and this is something that we don't want and must not miss. Because as we see the, the, his power, it, it goes on like this. Look at what verse 28 says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nege- Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. So this is what is happening. God says, I am giving this city into the hands of the king. Now, that's why our third thought here under the, the power of God in, indicates this. God is ultimate in providence. Now Nebuchadnezzar is is there coming in and he may be fully convinced of this. I came here right now because I wanted to. And I will fight against them and defeat them because I am more powerful than them. And I will accomplish this because of who I am that would probably be the conviction of Nebuchadnezzar and he would back that conviction up with experience gone into other kingdoms when I wanted to I defeated every other kingdom my father went into other kingdoms and he defeated every other kingdom people get so bold and they get so caught up that they begin to say even go so far as to say well god is on the side of whoever has the most powerful army nonsense or they they try to assume well god is on the side of whoever wins well That's kind of trying to put things before this and that. God has purposed and powerfully brought about whoever wins. Doesn't mean he's on their side. (laughs) So be careful about that. It's not that somehow the Babylonians and Chaldeans were wholly deserving worthy people. It's not that God was on their side, but God was using them as a tool to bring about proper punishment and discipline of his people who were in sin. God is ultimate in providence. He is giving this city over. History will say Nebuchadnezzar took it. He laid siege to it and he took the city. And the scripture has no problem even saying that. He laid siege to it. And he took the city. But then it also tells us what's behind that. Why did he come? Why did he lay siege? And why did he take the city? He came because God was angry with the sin of the children of Israel. And he brought them. He took the city because God gave it to him. And so that's why people always struggle with trying to figure out what's going on and trying to marginalize God as if he's kind of in the distance and and they've even made songs about that. You know, God is watching us from a distance. Praise God that's not true. (laughs) God is, is not simply watching. God is powerfully unfolding his purposes now that's hard for us because sometimes we look around and we see bad bad decisions being made at government levels bad actions and morals developing and increasing in our society we look around and say bad and it's it we're tempted to say things have got out of hand but no matter how in our figure of speech out of hand things get is anything ever out of his hand. It isn't. And so God permitting men. Now we, we look at it and we say it's really bad. I tell you we probably don't know. Just how bad it was before the flood. <laughs> the nature of mankind and sinfulness had so arisen. That God destroyed every man. On the woman and child on the face of the earth. Except for Noah and his family. Everyone destroyed because of how evil and how the the practice and excess of evil absolutely prevailed And God said no more And then he said I'm not going to destroy the world again by flood But he is coming again and there is going to be a judgment There is a flaming sword There is the power from the word of the mouth of the Son that comes. The world needs to... I mean, the Scriptures give us these things so we would take notice. We presume, and the Scriptures warn Israel even at times would say, He doesn't see. He's not going to do anything about it. Men presuming upon the patience of God. Be careful not to doubt the power of the potentate. Potentate is the great old King James word that the new, that the ESV translates, the great and only sovereign. God, the absolute powerful ruler. Now, he brings in Nebuchadnezzar. Now, many of us may know Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wins. He defeats in this battle. He brings back captives. Kings, royals, even Daniel. Even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he, they bring them, bring them back. And as he's returned from his tremendous victories, what does he do? You remember the story, right? He goes up to the top, the roof of his palace, and he surveys. And, and in reality, as far as his eye can see, and certainly much farther than his eye can see, everything is under his kingship. And he looks at that and what does he say to himself? Yeah, look what I did. Look what I got for myself, my kingdom, my great glory. And here he is looking at all that's happening, all of his victories, all of his accomplishments, and he thinks it was his power. He thinks it was his wisdom. He doesn't understand it was God's purpose. And so what does the scripture tell us? Daniel chapter 4. While the words are still in his mouth. the man becomes a beast. He will not sit at a table and feast. He will not bathe properly. He He will not speak even like a man. For seven years. He will graze in the field. And be unapproachable. Incommunicable. Absolutely divided. Isolated. He who thought he was above everyone else. Even the most outcast madman in the land. Is in a better condition and position. Than he's going to be for the next seven years. And then the scripture reminds us, and I have to read this in in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. And my understanding returned to me. Now it's it's interesting to note this. Even understanding comes to us from outside. Every faculty, every skill, every talent, every aptitude, every ability, everything is granted to us. So many people have so many practical blessings and they don't bless the name of the Lord for it. They give glory to another. To themselves, to their country, to their leaders, to whatever it may be. He goes on and says this, my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him that liveth forever. He's recognized a completely different distinction, right? Most High, I know I'm not the Most High anymore. He's going to start to declare he understands where he is. Uh, the one who has, lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. He's the absolute master everywhere and forever. So as big and lofty as his words of self-praise were, it gotten even bigger. Because he knew his dominion was massive, but limited. And the duration of it could be lengthy, but still limited. But now he's come to see something far bigger, far more than himself. And he says this, verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will with the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God is the one unfolding his purposes up there, down here, over there, over there, everywhere. Thank you. At all times, in all places, none can stay his hand. So no one can slow him down, no one can stop him, or say to him, what are you doing? You can't stop him, you can't slow him down, you can't question him. He is absolutely God. And not just God in terms of his divinity, but God in terms of his sovereign dominion as well. Accomplishing his purposes everywhere. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, and my brightness returned to me. All of a sudden, those skills and faculties that I once had, I got them back. My counselors and the Lord sought me out. So so interesting, at the same time that God is returning this ability to him, God has somehow put in the minds of these counselors to go and find him. How did they know? They didn't know. Somehow they just thought, let's, go, let's all go check on Nebuchadnezzar. Just on the day that he was restored. Just to, to begin to think the way God works things out. Amazing. They came to him. And sought me out, I was established back in my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now verse 37, now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are true, his ways and judgments are true, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Wow. Wow. What does Nebuchadnezzar now understand? whatever majesty I have, it is loaned to me. (laughs) Whatever abilities I have, they are loaned to me. Now, some of us have, have, by virtue of the realities of life, come to learn that practically. As the years go by, certain abilities, certain skills, we recognize they were loaned to me. (laughs) I don't have them anymore. The memory I may have had at one time, that was loaned to me. Uh, the, the sense of balance I had at one time, that was loaned to me. The eye-hand coordination, the, the, the back strength, the, the, the vigor, the, all those kinds of things. We, we, sometimes it's shocking because men will boast in their strength. I tell you, it doesn't matter how much you commit yourself to the gym. And I know men who have committed a lifetime to the gym. Uh, men who, who um, now bodily exercise is of some value. But there are, there are individuals who somehow end up committing far more time to the gym than they do to the word of God and prayer you could do the math on both of those and you could figure out where kind of the heart priority is but it doesn't change this when that fella reaches 80 90 he's just not going to be lifting what he did when he was at his peak in his mid 40s or wherever the peak is right uh, he's just he's just not going to be able to do that because Every everything is lent to us, uh, inside and out. Abilities, follicles, whatever. Everything has its limitation, and, and so we have these practical things that ought to remind us. Man, you know, I, I probably shouldn't find my identity in my hairstyle, because. Maybe that's not going to work out down the road. You know. Or maybe I shouldn't find my identity. Maybe we ought to find our identity. In something that is absolutely unchanging. I'll tell you this. If my identity is in Christ. That continues even when this body is buried and decaying. Unchanged. Oh. How glorious. Now, I want to move on from what we see. We've seen a very clear picture of the power. It's not good what we see going on here. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar is coming, the reason why he's really being brought, is because of their wickedness. And look at what it says concerning them in verse 30, we see one of the problems of the people is persistent sinning. It says this in verse 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. That is, that is a lot to say, isn't it? Nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Not just for a little while. Really, if you want to look at it, you can see how much they resisted and how much they struggled. Because here God has they not only persisted in sin, what I would call a pervasive stubbornness in their sin. Because look what the scripture says in verse 32. It says this. Because of all the evil, and, and he begins to list, of the children of Israel and the children of Judah... They provoke me to anger. They're kings. They're officials. They're priests. They're prophets. I mean, every single one who's supposed to be faithful. If we want to go back, they're kings. you, You go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Around chapter 18. And you were to see this. When a king was made to be a king, the first thing he was supposed to do was get a copy of the book of the law from the house of god and he was to write out his own copy (laughs) and then he was to keep that copy and read it every day so that he would learn not to sin and to live and fear god so the kings were supposed to lead by example further than the kings what about the priests they're the ones who had the law They're the ones who should definitely be living according to that. And beyond that, what about the prophets? And so everyone from top down, side to side, they were all committed to sin. And look what it says. Even as we move on uh, down to verse 33. They have turned to me their back and not their face. You see that powerful picture, don't you? They've They've not turned to give attention. To give interest, to seek favor, to honor. They've turned their back. To shun, to reject, to rebel. I will go my own way. I don't care what he says. But look what the scripture goes on to say. And though I have taught them persistently. What What did he do? He came in. He would he would send prophets to them who would come in and tell them you cannot continue to go this way You've got to turn back. Do not rebel. You've got to obey God would teach them persistently by raising up prophets like Jeremiah and others that we saw But not only would he teach them persistently that way we can see from this passage He would teach them persistently even by in their sinful condition sending famine sending pestilence Sending persecution, sending wars, God taught them in all of the different ways. He sent people with his word. He sent problems as punishment for their disobedience. And you know what they said? We still like what we like. We still want what we want. So hard, so uh, harsh in their sin. and. This really shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, what's interesting, if you go back after the flood has taken place and Noah and his children have come out of the ark, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, God's word says this. He says, um, when he smelt the first sacrifice of the altar that Noah built in 820, he says this in verse, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Uh, for, the inten- for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Does that sound familiar? He said that's the case. And what did Israel prove? Even with all of the attending promises and privileges of the old covenant. What's the nature of man's heart? Evil. From their youth. People do. What is in their hearts. Uh, those of us who are reading McShane's also have recently read Psalm 143. Where it, it pleads with God. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one. Is righteous. Before you. It just limits it. And, and it gets even stronger when I want you to see this. Look at how the How. Um, another problem with the people is profane sacrifices look at verse 34 and 35 now this is uh, what's shocking is you would think that this this kind of thing is unthinkable I tell you there are things going on right now in this country regarding morality and gender and, and, and marriage that in my mind was unthinkable things that even in our own lifetime you know this is obviously not politically correct in our own lifetime there are things that are celebrated now that were were a sure source of mockery in my youth People would look at, at certain behaviors and, and, and certain expressions of sinful desires, and, and it was a joke. It was, it was a shameful thing. And shame, now people are wearing their shame as pride. And they even have what are parades. Parades that are that, that are called pride parades. Pride parades for perversion. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Men, they are evil in their hearts from their youth. That's how they start and that's how they continue if it's not for the grace of God. And we don't say that to point our fingers and say ha ha. We say that pointing as many fingers at ourselves. That's who I was too. If God had not met me in my sin and delivered me from my sin and turned me from my sin and brought me to himself, I might still be there. so we look at this and look at the things they did. Uh, Verse 34 and 35 are shocking things. It says they set up their abominations. uh, In the house that is called by my name to defile it. So they brought idols for false worship into the temple of God. I mean that would seem unthinkable, right? Yeah, it still happens. Uh, Further, it goes on to say, they built high places to, I know you usually say Baal, but Baal, in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Now, what that basically is, is they would sacrifice, they would burn their children alive to false gods. I mean, does that not seem unthinkable? But that's how far... Sin can push, but and we, our thoughts sometimes are, well, that would never happen. People would never do those things. Look around at some of the wickedness that takes place in the world. Go and interview some of the people who are in prisons and ask them the things that they've done. The, some of the, the serial killers, people who will abduct and mistreat and abuse and eat. The, the twistedness of men's hearts, the darkness of depravity is so deep that I'm thankful it's, to some extent, beyond my imagination. The things that people do, I, I still think, how could anyone ever do that to a child? I, I can't understand why anyone would ever do that. But they do, and many do. Around the world. And I think. God help us. What is going on? This is how, how dark sin is. And now it goes on to say this. They offer their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them. The ESV then says there. Nor did it enter into my mind. That they should do this abomination. To cause me to sin. Now that's a strange statement there. Isn't it? I never thought that would happen well that's not what God is saying there does anything ever happen that God never thought would happen no and so you might have noticed for those who were reading in the ESV when I was reading this verse earlier some of you were probably thinking ooh he just misread where it says never came into my mind he read never came into my heart poor guy can't read well Sometimes I do skip words. I apologize for that. Um, but this was intentional. Because this particular word is not simply the idea of thought. It is, uh, it is that uh, Hebrew word leb, the inner man. This, would, this was never my inward desire. This is not something I would ever command. This is not something that I would ever want you to do for me. Uh, uh, some other places where we see this exact word, for example, is in um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Hannah prayed to the Lord and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. Same word. My heart exalts in the Lord. When... Uh, uh, the servants of, of Abraham came at, to, to find Rebekah, to bring Rebekah to be a wife uh, to Isaac. It says in G- Genesis 24, verse 45, before I had finished speaking, in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her wa- jar of water and drew water for me. So, so the idea is, this, it's not that this never came to mind, it's this I never commanded. Or would desire and delight in this from you? Why would you ever do this? But the children of Israel were so caught up in their problems and in their sin. But I want us to now move on from seeing the problem of the people. As a result of that, they lose the city. The whole region gets destroyed. They go into uh, captivity in exile for 70 years. The end of 70 years they're brought back and we read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah as God brings them back fulfilling his promise to restore them to the land but i want us to i want us to begin to see a little bit more and see the promise to the people now as i begin to read this promise to the people we need to you need to understand and see very clearly in here powerful parallels to the children of god and i'm going to help point those out for you but look what it in verse 42, it says this, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. Wow. When we get a promise from God, you know how special that is? Is It's not like the promise of men. I mean, a number of years ago, they, they uh, there was an attempt to... Um, To swell a movement to get men to keep their word better and be more faithful and followers and so this big promise keepers movement came and I tell you no matter how many men join those kind of programs and even commit to certain good intentions and good ideas, men cannot always keep their promises. I promise I'll be there in time for this. Can we guarantee that? (laughs) Something can happen on the road. Something can happen on the car. Maybe you're driving down the highway and and your your entire drivetrain just falls on the highway. Now, it sounds like a fabrication, but it happens to some people. Or maybe you go to start your car and it just won't work. Or you get caught up in meetings. Or uh, there's just no way men can always keep their promises. What about God? Yeah, because who can stop him? Who can slow him down? Who can hinder him in any way? Well, how can he say in 70 years he's bringing him back? What if after 70 years the king isn't ready to let him go? What if the king doesn't want to? Well, God's going to change what the king wants. Well, what? How could God do that? He's God? I mean, when did God stop being God? He can't. And he won't. Well, what if they, uh, there's, there's a war. What if the people themselves have gotten pretty cozy in the land? You know, they're all right. They like it. You know, good food. Good weather. We're staying. He's going to make them want to go home. What? You mean God is going to possibly control the hearts, desires, wants, intentions of people? He's going to just treat him like a puppet? No, he's not going to just treat him like a puppet. Because I'll tell you this, I can't make a puppet want something. You know why? Because a puppet doesn't have a heart. A puppet doesn't have a mind. A puppet doesn't think. A puppet only does what the strings tell it to do. Or the hand or whatever it is. How, however it controls it. But God is able to turn the hearts of people so that they themselves are pleased to do what he has purposed. That sounds, that's a lot more complicated than puppetry. Let me tell you. Because puppetry is something we can do. You know, they make shows out of puppetry. L- listen to what the scripture says here. and I want to I begin to see this parallel. First of all, remember this. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 8, it says, You brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. In Romans 9, 8, it says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh, Who are the children of God. But the children of the promise. Who are counted as offspring. So as we look at the children of the promise here. It has a historic fulfillment in part. But a much greater one when the kingdom is built. In the blood of the son. Now we're going to have to go through this part a little quickly. But we'll we'll do so. So come down with me. To uh, We're going to begin in verse 37. Behold I will gather. Well, what if they don't want to come? I will gather. What if they refuse? I will gather. There's no such thing as refusing or not wanting. God is going to gather. It's sort of like John 10. The shepherd comes and calls his sheep. And what do his sheep do? They hear his voice and they follow him why because they hear his voice why do they follow him because they want to follow him and then it goes on to say and when he has brought out all his own what do you mean when the shepherd has brought out all his own he didn't bring them out they followed him what they followed him because he brought them out you're confusing me no You're confusing yourself by trying to magnify the seeming might of men. Don't do it. I will gather them from out of all the countries to which they've gone. I might call that calling grace. He is going to call them back. He's going to call them to himself. And when he calls them, what's going to happen? In the vernacular, they gon' come. Right? Look, I want you to see also, in case it wasn't strong enough, I will gather them from all of the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in my indignation. They were where they were at because I put them there. And they're going to come back because I'm going to bring them back. Men are all where they are, children of wrath, because God put them there when Adam sinned. And when God calls by his grace, what does he do? He brings us back. He's the one who in his righteous indignation condemned all men in Adam, and from that condemnation, from that wrath, as we're scattered among the nations of this world, he gathers his people to himself. He's not done. He goes on to say this. I will bring them back. I will gather. I will bring them back. Is it happening? Yes. Well, how do we know? Well, as a foretaste of the surety that that's how God works us in salvation, you know what happened after 70 years? Children of Israel went back to Jerusalem. They bought, they built houses. They bought and sold land. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the wall. They were restored as a nation. God did, in a small sense, what he said he was going to do for them. He does, in a much more extensive sense, the same things. Even more glorious for us. Keep going with me. So we see that. uh, what I'd call calling grace, and it moves on even in verse 37 to what I might call comforting grace. I will make them or cause them to dwell in safety. God himself has committed to their security. Once we are in Christ, once we are in his kingdom, we will not be exiled again. We will not be taken out again. And the enemy can do whatever he can do, even to the point of maybe he can take our lives. But as we often celebrate, he cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Even when he thinks he wins, he loses. As the devil entered Judas and motivated him to give over Jesus to be crucified. What happened in the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ? Victory was declared. The enemy's uh, sure destruction was established and declared. You lose. The devil served for his own destruction. He cannot When we are safe in the hands of God they will dwell safely and How comforting it is because it says this in verse 38 they shall be my people and I will be their God Oh such a wonderful thing because that's what it says in, in Romans chapter 9 verse 25 and following quoting there also from Hosea and it says those who were not my people Expanding the idea at one point everybody thought my people means Jews my people means Israel. God's salvific purposes were much bigger than that who he was gonna save and who Christ was gonna lay hold of every tongue tribe and nation So he will say to those who were not my people I will call my people and who who was who was called Not beloved I will call beloved in that very place where it was said to them. You are not my people They will be called sons of the living God And in Hebrews when it talks about the new covenant that better covenant that covenant that's, that's established in the blood of Christ. That covenant that's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah after those days. With the children of the promise. It says this. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's funny about this is, is in the way that this is worded, if you, if you read from verse 37 and following, you're going to see this phrase a lot. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. And you think, whoa. What about me? We are the powerful recipients of that grace and that grace powerfully changes All That we do it brings about a remarkable response look what it says Uh, uh, We move on from comforting grace to what I would call constraining grace look what it says in verse 40. I will Make with them an Everlasting covenant A covenant that will not be broken that will not be breached that will not come to an end this listen that I will not turn away from doing good to them the way that's further described to us in the new in the new covenant is i will remember their sins no more it's done he will never turn from us why because we are in his beloved son oh just keep reading with me and we see not only this this uh constraining grace in that sense, but it gets even bigger in, verse, in, in the rest of verse 40. Because look what it says. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. What does that mean? Yeah. In the Old Testament, since fear is not just trembling, but it certainly includes that in part. It was a reverential awe a respect, a, a, a desire to worship, a desire to obey. It spoke of a, a whole character. That's why even in the New Testament, God-fearers is a reference to those who worship and live in respect and in light of the kingdom of God. I will, gi- I will give them one heart and one way Look at, I want to go back to verse 39. Look at this. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Wait a second. One heart means he's now what? Cause all of these people to desire the same thing. And because they all now desire the same thing, and that is to do what pleases him and to walk in his ways, he will give them one way. Wait a it, it, and so now what do how do they make decisions? Their decisions are controlled by their desires and their delights, and with a new heart, new desires and new delights, they make different decisions. So God is absolutely Changing them? How can he say that? How can he say that he's going to bring them back? And he's going to cause them all to love him. All to follow him. All to walk in his way. All to do what he wants. What if they don't want to? They can't not want to. Because he's going to change their wants. He gives them one heart. One way. That they will fear the Lord forever that's powerful isn't it when he does it it's not it's not a one time thing it's not one and done it, it is now that you are there this is your new absolute changed way. And, and so I would call it constraining grace. And it's, it's carried on to continuing grace. An everlasting covenant. Forever. It does not ever end. Hebrews 13.20. By the blood of the eternal covenant. So much so. I will put the fear of me in there. Look at the, what it says. In, at the end of verse 40. And I will put. The fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Well, what if they want to? They may not. And they may not want to, you know why? Because He has put the fear of Him in their hearts. He powerfully works at the very core, the very soul of man to make it new. See, that's why before the grace of God, men's hearts were by nature continually evil from their youth. And now when they're given a new heart and a new way and a fear of him is put in them forever, now what is their desire? Continually pleasing, continually obedient onwards. So both of these conditions are kind of stuck. Men are in that sinful condition and they're stuck there. Why? Not because of choices they made, but because of Adam's sin that affects all their choices. And we are now where we are in grace, not because of choices we made. But because of the second Adam Christ, who gave himself for us, and who brought us, and who gave us a new heart, who sent us his spirit, and who changed us. And now we continue in the way of the second Adam. The first Adam made a decision that pleased himself. The second Adam did everything that was pleasing in the sight of his father. We are a changed people and then we also see this um, what I might call um, committed grace and this is not only this here what I like about when I say committed grace here it's not speaking of our commitment to God that's sure because the fear of God is put into our hearts forever but God's commitment to us see that's why it works my commitment if it was based on me oh boy God's commitment and look look with me as as we see God's commitment I will put the fear of me in the hearts that they may not turn away from me verse 41 I will rejoice in doing good to them the scripture reminds us that when when God in his mercy turns one sinner Saves one lost soul what happens in heaven? There is rejoicing in heaven Over the powerful saving work of God displayed on earth. He rejoices in doing good to his people. Not only that, it says, I will rejoice in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Wow. God's commitment to our salvation when he has called us to himself. Involves his whole heart and soul. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more sure and secure in existence. God, very God, has pledged himself in totality to us. Oh my goodness, though we are altogether become worthless, not deserving. Who we were deserved only punishment and to be abased. But God in his mercy has brought us, brought us to himself. He's transformed us and changed us. He has delighted himself to not just give us a spark, but to continue to stoke the flame of faithfulness in our own hearts forever. Is that pretty good? Oh my. And so in conclusion, we just see three simple thoughts in this passage. The power of the potentate. Universal in his possession. Unstoppable in his power. Ultimate in all providence. We see the problem of the people. Persistent sinning. Pervasive stubbornness. And profane sacrifices. And then we see the promise to the people. That promise that parallels and has a greater fulfillment in the people of the promise. And we see that fulfilled in I will, I will, I will. And they shall be my people. They shall fear me. They shall because I will. Calling grace, comforting grace, constraining grace, continuing grace, and committed grace. Oh, what a God. Oh, what grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for... Just your word and the way that unfolds these things that should lead us to really the same uh, responses as Nebuchadnezzar. Oh God, we who are worthless, we who are worthy of nothing, to you is all dominion. To you is all power from generation to generation. Lord, it is with you to bring low. It is with you to bring near. It is with you to bring us to yourselves. Lord, we long to see more people being brought to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us a a fervency in the declaration of the gospel. That it is by our verbal calling that you are pleased to spiritually call your people to to yourself. And you bring them. And you give them one heart. And you give them one way. And you rejoice in them. And you are committed to their good with all your heart and all your soul. God, to think that you have done that for us. That you have made us your treasured and beloved possession. Because of your beloved son. Oh, thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.